I met a traveller from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing besides remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Daniel is the story of our world. It's the story of the rise and fall of kingdoms as God's kingdom endures forever. It's a story, as we've seen so far, of two cities and two kings, a, a city, Babylon, with apparent power and strength, uh, and yet a city that will soon pass. The city of Jerusalem, God's city, a city of apparent weakness, a city that will soon prevail. And it's a tale of a king, Nebuchadnezzar, pretending to sit on the throne and the king, God himself, who will reign forever. That's the story of Daniel, it's the story of our world. At its heart, at its simplest, Daniel declares that the living God is our king, that heaven rules and will rule forever. As so far in this journey through the book of Daniel, we've seen that wisdom is knowing that God is king and trusting God as king. Foolishness, on the other hand, is rejecting that reality, saying in our heart, there is no God, there is no king. And in Daniel 4 and 5 that we will look at over these next two weeks, we, are, we see up close and we hear up close what foolishness looks like. And as we hear it, we're, we're meant to listen well because if you've got Daniel 4 open in front of you there, verse 1, we're told this is a word, this testimony from Nebuchadnezzar's own lips of his own foolishness is a word for all peoples, all nations, all time. And so we do well to listen. And as we listen, we'll see how often we as humans pretend to be king in God's place. We will see how God responds. And from that testimony, we will see how we should respond. And so let me pray that God will help us to hear that well. Heavenly Father, you are our Father, and yet you are also our King. Humble our hearts now to hear this word as the word of our God and King. Help us to hear it and obey it. Amen. Let's look at Daniel chapter 4 and we start by firstly seeing what happens when you pretend to be king in God's world. In the TV comedy series uh, Seinfeld that I, that I loved growing up, uh, one of the main characters is a guy called George Costanza uh, and he has over the, over the course of the show a series of unsuccessful jobs. Uh, my absolute favourite job is a, a job that he almost had, a job at a rest stop supply company, whatever they do. And uh, he's having an interview for this job and the interview is going very well. And uh, right about the moment where it looks like he's going to be offered the job, uh, there's an interruption and the person interviewing him is called away and George never gets to find out exactly whether he got the job or not. And so he spends the next couple of days trying to work out, did I get the job or not? And he, he thinks that it looks silly to, to ring up and ask. So he hatches a plan. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to turn up. I'm going to turn up and assume I have the job. I'm going to pretend I have the job. And so that's what he does with this boss who'd interviewed him away for a couple of weeks. He simply sits at a desk and he moves the paper around and he pretends that the role is his. I'll just pretend the job is mine. 
At its simplest, that is the Bible's testimony about humanity and how we relate to God. We pretend the job of being God, we pretend the job of ruling our life is our job. We pretend to be king over our own life. And we do this despite the evidence, despite creation all around us showing us that uh, God is king, that there is something bigger and much more wonderful than us. Uh, Despite, as Romans 1 says, that humanity decide that uh, it's not worth retaining knowledge of God. Even those moments where we do see that there must be a God, we, we don't think it's worth retaining that knowledge. And so in the words of Proverbs 14, we foolishly in our hearts decide that there must not be a God. I am as big as it gets. In our hearts, we declare independence. At base, it is about our pride. I am in charge. I call the shots of my life. And that's Nebuchadnezzar, as we see in this uh, story so far. Um, His claim in Daniel 4, I am a mighty king, uh, is not without merit. Back in chapter 1, we saw he conquered God's city, Jerusalem. He's conquered the known world by this stage. Daniel 2, God himself says, you are a head of gold. You are a strong ruler. And by Daniel 3, he says, well, let's make the whole statue gold. I want to rule permanently. I am king, says Nebuchadnezzar. And along the way, there are flickers of moments of knowledge of God. Uh, Remember back in chapter 2, verse 47, as he saw uh, God reveal the mystery of his dream. He says to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the King of kings. But it's not a, it's not, not a knowledge worth retaining. It's good in a crisis, but that's about it. Uh, it reminds me a bit like someone who might call upon thoughts and prayers in a moment of crisis and then, well, has no need or want of God after that. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't seem to need God. Daniel 4, verse 4, he's contented, he's prosperous. By this stage, he's conquered the world. The infrastructure projects of Babylon are largely done. And, and the dream, uh, the describing his rule that we see there in verses 10 to 12, describes Nebuchadnezzar like some enormous tree in the field of the world. And it's like all the world is sheltering under his protection and his provision. And that's not a delusion. That's the reality of who he is. Nebuchadnezzar is the ruler of the world. And uh, the dream here of him, if you like, uh, ruling over the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, again, as we've seen in Daniel, it echoes the, the words of Genesis 1 and 2. This is the job given to humanity, to rule God's creation under God's rule. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is the ultimate example of humanity ruling the world successfully. It's a happy dream at this point. Yeah, I'm the tree. But then the dream is jolted by a word, a message from heaven. Verse 13, there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. And he called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, cut down Nebuchadnezzar's rule. You see, the problem for Nebuchadnezzar as he took on this role of ruling over creation, of being a great king in God's world, he got so used to that role that he'd come to the conclusion that he was the king in the world. There was none above him, no God above him. There was no knowledge that he had retained of such a God. And so verse 30, Nebuchadnezzar surveys the kingdom of Babylon that he has built, and this is his conclusion. Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as a royal residence for myself as the king? I've built it by my mighty power. And then he says this, for the glory of my majesty. This is as big as it gets. The crown is on my head. I have done it. I am great. I deserve the glory. 
Nebuchadnezzar is a self-made man in a self-made kingdom. He is very much in charge. That is his dream. And it is, I want to suggest to you, the Australian dream too, perhaps not on the same grand scale as Nebuchadnezzar. But to a man and a woman, we are taught in our city and in our culture from childhood that we are in charge of our own life. We call the shots. I'm the king of this little realm. Uh, we see it even in the way our children are taught at school. One of my children, the, the school that they're at, uh, has this slogan that I regularly hear, you're enough, it's all in you. Everything that you would want to achieve, it's all in you. You're in charge. It's the North Shore dream. My effort, my ingenuity, my skill, my hard work will lead to self-exalting ease. Now, we don't want to say the self-exalting bit, but in the end, the ease and the comfort I will experience has come about by me. Uh, just like Nebuchadnezzar. And the relentless pursuit of that independent life where we would have no need or want of God because we've made ourselves comfortable and prosperous. The pursuit of that is relentless. Uh, from the school years, the, the pursuit of academic achievement, the huge and sometimes tragic pressure that is put on students to get the right results to be in charge of their destiny. Or the idol of financial well-being that we set before ourselves that's being battered at the moment by COVID. The dream, uh, I think, shows itself ultimately, at least in my line of work, in, in what is eulogised sometimes at funerals. Often the stories are of self-made men and women. The problem, of course, is that over time, when success comes, we do convince ourselves that we have done it because we have been in charge that's Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion. And, and to be honest, in his case, he has more evidence to cite than us. Verses 29 and 30, he looks over essentially the known world. I am a self-made man in a self-made kingdom and it is for my glory. And I think it's worth pausing at this point to see that what we have here in these verses is the heart of what human sin before God looks like. Human sin at its heart is taking the throne that belongs to God. Sin is, is not just about doing wrong things. Yeah, that's part of it. But under that, at the heart of what drives that, it is a mistaken view of who I am. I'm in charge. I remember in my early years as a Christian, I learned a, a simple gospel explanation, two ways to live. And in it, it's got a series of pictures describing the way we as humanity relate to God. And in the first picture is what God has set up, that he's created us as humans uh, to rule over his world, under his rule, that that's the job he's given us. But what we do is that we cross out his crown. We say, let's forget God and I'll put the crown on my head and I will be king. I'm in charge. And if there's success, I get the glory. When you ignore God, you think you are king and that is the heart of sin. I'm in the seat, I'm in the throne. It's worth asking uh, as you think about your own life, who is in the seat of power of your life? Who calls the shots? And uh, you can work that out actually by asking two questions. Here they are. How do you make the decisions you make? Who drives those? Who gets a say in those decisions? And secondly, who gets the credit for what I do, what you do, especially when it's successful? I mean, think about decisions, for instance. How do you make the decision about how you live, what you'll do, what, what you won't do? Uh, sin, in the end, according to the Bible, is making decisions under the pretense that I'm in charge of those decisions. Sin is deeper than whether I do the right thing or not. That's important to see. Uh, 
if I'm on the throne, if I'm calling the shots about what I do or don't do, my decision, my self-determined decision might lead me to break God's commands or it actually might lead me to heed God's commands, but I won't do it because of God. The reason I'll do it is because I chose to. I'm in charge. The question in the end is not whether I do more right than wrong. The big question is who's on the throne in your world, in your realm. The reality is you can be a very good and moral and successful person, but in your heart be in complete rebellion before God and therefore a sinner. The heart of sin is saying, I'm in charge. And here's the other aspect that we see from Nebuchadnezzar about the heart of sin. It's also saying, I've done it. When success comes, I get the credit. We see that in verse 30. Uh, But let me ask you, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's success is extraordinary. Ours is obviously going to be much smaller, relatively speaking. But consider your own life. Uh, Why have you been able to achieve what you have, As, as humble as you may think it is? Perhaps if you've been successful academically, why were you able to do that? Or if you've advanced in your career over the years, uh, how how did that happen? Or your family, maybe it's stable and happy and contented. Uh, How did you do that? How often our pretense is, I've done it. The salary or the house or that holiday or the stable family or the good reputation or the series of successes on my CV, I've done it. It's the ethic of our city. If you're successful, if you work hard enough, you'll get what you deserve. Uh, You've done those things. You deserve it. Uh, We we tell it to year 12ers, uh, get the band sixes and you'll set yourself up. We, we, We tell it in the career, in our careers, get the promotion, take the next step. You can do it. Or the 50 year marriage. I've done that. I've successfully kept this marriage together. We've done it. But it's a pretense. Verse 17 says, the living, that's all of us, must know that the Most High, that is God, is sovereign over all the kingdoms and all the lives of this earth. And he gives them, that is the kingdoms, to anyone he wishes. And he sets over things, even the lowliest of people. That's where we come into the equation. That's who we are before God. We are the lowliest. It's not in us. We are not enough on our own. In and of ourselves, we are just a collection of cells that God, our creator, has fearfully and wonderfully knitted together. Each one of us, uh, each one endowed with skills and creativity and intellect and health for as long as we have it and strength and relationships and opportunities and great moments in life and flashes of success, all of it has come from him. And yet we keep pretending it's all in me. I had it all in myself from the beginning. I'm enough. I've done it. Verse 17 says, no, no. It all comes from him. Nebuchadnezzar is shown that in this dream uh, and it's shown to us not in a dream but in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That life, this is what Acts 17 says, life and breath and everything else. Uh, Even Acts 17 says where you live, where you have your home, you're not responsible in the end for that. That's God's doing. He put you where you are. It comes from him. He's the king, not us. And he's proven that he's the king by raising his son from the dead. He's placed him as king over all creation. Despite this word to Nebuchadnezzar in the dream, he keeps pretending that he's king. And as he surveys his kingdom in verse 30, having seen this dream, that if he continues in that, the tree will be cut down. The fulfillment of that dream comes. Verse 31. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. 
until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and gives them to whoever he wishes. How does God respond to Nebuchadnezzar's pretense to be on the throne? How will he respond to anyone who persists in such pretense? Verse 37, the very last words of this chapter, those who walk in pride, which is any of us who who choose to live as if we're in charge, those who walk in pride, he will humble. The king of all humans, human lives takes the kid gloves off and he knocks Nebuchadnezzar off his throne here to reveal to him the depths of his pretense and to reveal to him the, the significant extent of his dependence on God for life and breath and all else. I mean, the picture of Nebuchadnezzar and this, this pitiful figure that he becomes having lost his throne is it's a bit like the, the picture of the prodigal son in Luke 15, sitting in the pigsty, in the muck of the pigsty, slowly coming to his senses and thinking, what was I thinking? Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn, verse 26, that heaven rules, not Nebuchadnezzar. That is the great reality of the universe, not just for him, but for all of us. It's the message of scripture that verse one, all peoples must learn. There is a king on the throne and we must stop pretending otherwise and not pretend, stop pretending in some casual sort of thoughts and prayers kind of way, but in submitting our whole lives to the living God who has revealed his king, the Lord Jesus, in his death and resurrection. Now listen to these words from Acts 17 that, that says God will no longer put up with ignorance about the fact that there is a king. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, we're told. But now he commands people everywhere, all people everywhere, to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Uh, The pretense is over. The imagination, is there a God, is there not, am I in charge, am I not? All of that is over. It's been declared once and for all by the resurrection. This is is how C.S. Lewis puts it this pretense that there's no God. Uh, He says, suppose we really found him, speaking of God. It's always shocking to meet life where we didn't think there was any. We thought we were alone. Look out, we cry, it's alive. And therefore, this is the point where many pull back. Maybe they'd be happy with an impersonal God. Yeah, that'd be good. Or a subjective God of beauty and truth and goodness inside our own heads. That, That sounds better still. Or a formless life force that we could tap into from time to time, best of all. But God himself, alive and our king, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars at home hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling with God draw back, supposing we really found him. We never really meant it to come to that, or worse still, supposing that he found us. The unmissable drumbeat of Daniel 4 is this. There is a God and he is king. Do you see it there? Verse 3, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And in case we miss it, verse 17, it's there again. The living, that's all of us, must know that the most high God is sovereign over all. And in case we miss it, he says it again, verse 25, you must know that the most high is sovereign over all. And just in case we really have found a way to miss it, verse 32, the most high is sovereign over all. The drumbeat at the heart of the universe is this, God is king, creation declares it to us. The resurrection of Jesus makes it an undisputable fact. And his word, the gospel that we have in front of us today keeps declaring it to us so we will hear it. There is a king, repent and believe. Nebuchadnezzar learns by losing everything. 
Uh, finally, the penny drops. He's not a self-made man in a self-made kingdom. He is a God-made man in a God-given kingdom. Heaven rules, not Nebuchadnezzar. God is king. That, that, that's the Christian gospel. And the Christian gospel, you see here, it's not a philosophy, a sort of a way of thinking or, or some pretense or panacea to our felt needs. No, it's the declaration that Jesus is king, our king, and we must submit to him. It's announced throughout Jesus' life and ministry as we see his extraordinary power over things we are powerless before, power over nature, a power over sickness, a power to forgive our sins before the living God, a power even over our death. And it's announced once and for all in his resurrection, uh, raised as our king, raised as our judge forever, as Acts 17 says. And, and Acts 17 says he's coming soon and we can be sure of it because God raised him from the dead and he will come to chop down our proud trees. And if you have come to Jesus in repentance and faith, if, if that's you as we look at this together, you need to know that this news that Jesus is king and that he's coming as judge is the most urgent news and task in this world. Even in this COVID era, this is the urgent news of the day. In this COVID time where we, 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 many of us, myself included, we bunker down and we look after our own. This is the crisis of our age. Not how many case numbers are going to appear tomorrow or next week or the week after. To make this news is the, the, the agenda of the day. We are to tell people he is king. All must learn, Daniel 4 says. And we're not to tell them out of guilt or some sort of begrudging obligation, but because of the unfolding tragedy that many are living as if he is not. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians 3. He says, I've often told you, and I'm going to tell you again, he says, even with tears, many live as enemies of the king. Now learn from Daniel here. See how he approaches King Nebuchadnezzar. It's this wonderful mix of compassion and truth. He's, in verse 19 to 26, he stands before the king and his heart breaks for what's coming towards Nebuchadnezzar. And he fears, not for his own life, he fears for what's coming towards Nebuchadnezzar. And he begs him, please listen, repent, believe. When was the last time you begged someone you know and love like that? And to those who are listening today, who still live as if you are in charge, if you've never bowed the knee before God as king because perhaps you don't see your need or want to, I want to ask you right now, have you heard in Daniel 4 and heeded again the news that God is king over you? That's the truth. All you are and all you have has come from God. None of it is of our own making and none of it was meant for our own glory. But if we forget that, or if we pretend that it is not true, here's the path ahead of us. It's the one that Nebuchadnezzar walks. One day, all of this will be gone. Life, breath, everything else. Again, Acts 17, verse 31. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed king. And he has given proof to us by raising him from the dead. Have you heard and responded to this news? Nebuchadnezzar does, and God is true to his promise. He responds with mercy. The final verses here, we see Nebuchadnezzar raise his eyes to heaven. That's the moment of repentance. There's something bigger than me. I'm not in charge. And God delivers on his promise. Out of mercy, he rescues and restores this man. He restores Neb, and he will restore us too, if we will heed. He patiently waits for us to heed. Listen to these words from 2 Peter the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to come and judge, 
as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. One day, each one of us will come face to face before Jesus. And we're told in Philippians 2 that on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is king without exception. And what we're told is that on that day, that confession that he is king will either be a cry of anguish if up to that point we have persisted in the pretense that we're king. It'll be anguish as the true king judges us. Or it will be a shout for joy if we have bowed the knee before our king. The king who we have come to see brings forgiveness and peace with God and hope forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our King and that you have shown it once and for all in the Lord Jesus. Humble us to hear that and repent and believe. Amen.